Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. It's a podcast where we summarize modern medical legal threats to doctors in 15 minutes or less. The goal is to allow you to continue practicing great medicine with peace of mind. And I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical and Dental Justice, an organization dedicated to protecting physicians from frivolous lawsuits, internet libel, unwarranted demands for refunds, and a gazillion other medical legal threats. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mike Sakopoulos, who serves as our organization's general counsel. I'm going to be frank. This is one of my favorite cases that came in, and I'm sure it's not uh, a joy for the person who went through it, but of the cases, and we had plenty of great cases, but this is one of uh, my favorites. So without further ado, this is a lawsuit that um, involved a podiatrist at a nursing home. So a patient presented with a consult, and this I'm quoting, care and treatment of mycotic toenails. I'm guessing that's fungus in the toenails. So when the patient was seen, uh, he was noted to have a TMA, and we'll come, up, come back to that in a minute. So TMA stands for transmetatarsal amputation. So that'd be an amputation of part of the foot. And it was a TMA on the right and left foot. This was a fresh procedure and it was bandaged and it's in, that is both sides were bandaged uh, in their entirety. Um, so the patient said he had the exact same surgery on the left as he had on the right. He confirmed that he did not have fungal toenail, <laughs> toenails because he no longer had any toes. That's aggressive treatment, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the, the so the patient was was being followed by his surgeon who performed the TMA, but he was out of town, um, and he had an appointment scheduled with his surgeon two days later. So the podiatrist wrote a note indicating the patient was a surgical patient of Doctor John Doe, and it had an upcoming appointment. The note also indicated the patient did not possess the body part for which the consult was made. So let me repeat that. The note included a statement that the patient did not possess the body part for which the consult was made, namely the toenails or, or the fungus in the toenails. He had no toes. Uh, the note briefly stated the patient was a surgical patient and bandage was present, intact, and clean. So several months later, after the podiatrist left the practice and unfortunately no longer had any malpractice insurance, a lawsuit was initiated, and here's what they learned. The patient had been taken by ambulance the day after the consult where um, he was quite sick and had a below-the-knee amputation at another hospital. Uh, during this time, he was flooded with platelets, which sent him into congestive heart failure. That took a turn for the, for the worse. And several weeks after the below-the-knee amputation, the patient died. So when the patient or the patient's family or their estate sued, the podiatrist no longer had malpractice insurance. He had to hire a private attorney to write a letter explaining that this was not her surgical patient, that she was consulted for fungal toenails, and the patient had neither any toes nor any toenails. So you would think that, okay, great, this case should be dropped immediately, at least against the podiatrist. But the litigating attorney did not want to drop the podiatrist from the case. The case went to mediation, and then the, the podiatrist was the first one dropped. However, in discovery, the podiatrist learned 
that uh, the patient had no further vascular options, meaning that the transmetatarsal amputation was a limb salvage procedure, and the patient had been extensively counseled to get a more aggressive procedure, namely a below-the-knee amputation. The surgeon who performed the lesser surgery, namely the transmetatarsal amputation, was never sued. So the limb had poor blood flow at the time of surgery and following surgery. That limb was never expected to survive. No surprise, the patient ended up uh, getting sick, transferred to another hospital, had the below-the-knee amputation, which was probably the um, the procedure that should have been performed in the first place, but the patient died and everybody was sued. And when everybody is sued, this is called blank. Mike, fill in the blank. A shotgun lawsuit. Ding, ding, ding. Yep, everybody in the record gets named. So even if you're the knight in shining, shining armor who comes to save the day because your name is on the chart, you're going to be dragged into the suit. So how do attorneys look at this? Well, actually, they're okay with shotgun suits. Why? The attorney will initially argue, this case is too complex to let anyone off the hook right now. Let's try and get some deposition testimony, and then later we can figure out who the real culprits are. So by deposition, he is hoping that you, now a defendant, will throw another named defendant under the bus. So with multiple defendants, the attorney is only too happy to have the defendants duke it out. And then he, the attorney, can sit on the sidelines eating popcorn uh, while all the defendants deliver the outcome uh, he hopes to achieve. So talk a little bit about um, throwing a colleague under the bus, because I know there's a natural impulse to point the finger saying, um, it's not just enough to say, hey, I had nothing to do with this case. Uh, there seems to be... Um, I guess, an incentive or motivation to say, um, while I did everything right, the person you're looking for is the other doctor, that surgeon who delivered care below the standard of care. That's the person you should be focusing on. What, talk about the distinction between stating, I'm not liable versus I'm not liable because the other doctor committed negligence. All right. So, that is somewhat of a natural reaction that people have, right? It, it's not my fault, and let me tell you whose fault it is, right? We, to the extent that you do that, you bring yourself into the litigation. You're now giving opinions as to uh, treatment rendered by, by others. In this specific case, the podiatrist really didn't know the background. The podiatrist is there uh, to look at some uh, toenail fungus not knowing anything about the vascularization of the, the lower limbs. So what, what the podiatrist knew or didn't know at, at the time seems very relevant and shouldn't be put in the position of um, forming up the, the circular uh, firing squad of, of providers. All right, look, it's enough to say, it wasn't me, here's why. I, I came to treat something that wasn't there and what went on before or after, I don't know. I was there for the, um, for toenail fungus, uh, for a patient that had no, no toenails. And it was, um, that, that's all I, I really know. The more you, you draw yourself in and talk about other people's failure in care, you risk yourself having problems of why didn't you point that out to the patient? 
why didn't you tell if you think that the care was uh, so poor by these other providers, you didn't mention it to the patient or their family? Um, you can create problems for yourself uh, while trying to uh, extricate yourself from, from this litigation. So word of the wise on that, be, be very careful of um, throwing someone uh, under the bus. And we also see um, the issue of throwing someone, someone under the bus in cases that are not yet medical malpractice cases. So there's often rivalry or competitive spirit between doctors at the other end of the hall or in uh, those who just perceive of themselves as competitors until one of their patients shows up into your office. And I will argue, resist the impulse to speak ill of the original uh, doctor. And the reason I say that is because A, you don't have all of the facts of the original case, and B, if, if you are talking ill of the first surgeon and word gets out, don't be shocked if you're on the receiving end in a similar situation. Um, the, the gentlemanly thing to do or the diplomatic thing to do when you don't have all the facts is to pick up the phone and try and get more facts. And, and I've seen this work a number of times where a, a patient will have um, undergone surgery from, we'll, we'll call him Surgeon A, and ends up in Surgeon B's office, and the patient is unhappy. Says, "I, you know, Surgeon A was a butcher. He damaged me, um, created a problem." Um, I've seen where the second surgeon will pick up the phone, call the first surgeon, and said, "Look, I just want to give you uh, a heads up, letting you know that your patient is in my office. He's not happy. Is there anything I should know about this particular patient, um, or anything you want me to say?" So they've done two things. One is that they've tried to get more information and not pass judgment until they have the full story. And number two, hoping to be the diplomat. Here it may be possible to do the original surgeon a favor and um, douse out the flames to try and make it a little bit easier for all parties involved. When a patient's mad, the patient is mostly interested in getting their problem solved. But if the second surgeon, in this particular example, can um, can um, can do two things: one, solve the patient's problem and get them to, um, I guess, um, uh, mitigate some of their angst against the first surgeon. Then, then that's that's actually a useful skill set. And so, what do you think of that, uh, Mike? What oh, do you, in terms of that as a guiding principle? You're, you're you're spot on. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? <laughs> yeah. so, and the other thing to remember is. You know, the patient may be very upset at your competitor slash nemesis, um, but that very characteristic of the patient could flip around and turn on you. So you want to be a, very careful in thinking, oh, well, the patient has good reason to be upset about this or that without knowing all of the facts, because it could just be a patient that is um, just a hostile, unpleasant person that will turn on you next. So to the extent we can tamp this down, solve patients' uh, problems, and not steer them towards um, litigation by pointing them in a direction and opening the door for them to go through, I think everyone is better off. Yeah, and this, this is what I call a rookie, or it's an error made by many rookies where someone just finishes their training, they're in the first or second year of practice, and then someone shows up in the door and says, doctor, I've heard so many positive and wonderful things about you. Um, I'm hoping you can solve my problem. I went to 
um, three other people. They each performed a procedure, and they're all they're all butchers. The, these people, you know, should have their licenses revoked. But I've heard such wonderful things about you. Do you think you can help me? Well, your natural instinct is to react positively. You're you're now being compared to icons in the field, the titans that are out there, and the implication is that you're better than these people. I would argue, don't take the bait. This is such a major red flag. Here's why. You're going to be surgeon number four when they go to surgeon number five. You will join that uh, long line of surgeons that um, are being pilloried just for having tried to help this patient. So <laughs> I, I recognize it's, it is flattering. Um, just resist the bait. We call this a major red flag. And um, most, most people have gone through this once, get burned, they'll do it again. What are, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, a, a, absolutely. Let's, let's uh, shift gears and talk uh, briefly about the lack of insurance coverage. Because I th unfortunately think that physicians sometimes uh, don't understand or get confused on the types of coverage that are out there. There are really two types of, of policies. There are claims-made policies and there are occurrence-based policies. The automobile insurance that you that you have is, is occurrence-based. So if you're involved in an accident while you've bought a policy that covers you from a certain date, January 1 of 2019 to January or December 31st of the year, right? <clears throat> Not necessarily true when it comes to professional liability. You may have to have the policy in effect on the date that you perform the act that is being questioned and on the date in which the claim is brought against you. So this means you might have to purchase what is called a tail coverage if you're moving from one policy uh, to another, but you want to know is this occurrence-based or is it claims made so you don't have a gap in coverage. And I think that's very important. You want to have a good broker that can help you with these things, but sometimes physicians don't understand the normal insurance that we all purchase, whether it's for homeowners or automobiles, you name it, is occurrence-based. So that's what you're thinking you have, but you may have a policy that is claims made and you have this gap and all of a sudden you find out, oh no, no coverage whatsoever. And uh, then you have a real problem. And the vast majority of professional liability policies that are sold in the United States are claims made policies. They're not occurrence policies. Clearly there are occurrence policies that are out there, but the majority of policies that are sold are claims made. And the reason is quite simple. They're, they're less expensive because when you buy an occurrence policy, you're buying a built in tail coverage for it. So it has to be more expensive. So just pay attention to the type of policy uh, that you have. It's likely a claims made a policy, but you may get lucky, you may have already purchased an occurrence policy. And I think I'd like to close with just a brief comment about tail coverage because you, you did hint about it. So if you have a, a claims made policy and you're either, either moving to another locale uh, or you're retiring, you um, need to make sure that you have this lingering coverage we call tail coverage. Frequently it's about um, one and a half to two times the cost of your annual claims made uh, policy. There are times where, um, where people get into trouble because they are W-2 employees for either a, um, a large multi-specialty organization or a, um, a large healthcare system, 
where they just assume going in that they're always going to have proper coverage if they are sued for any type of work they did while working at that organization. But every state is different. And if your contract agreement is silent, it may very well be that your employer owes you nothing. I know in one state, there is a pellet law which says that if your contract agreement is silent, um, it's a reasonable assumption to conclude that your employer was always going to cover you for any type of liability incurred for performing services for that employer. So that's a New York interpretation, which means that the absence of language would work in your favor. But there are other states, I can't recall the top of my head which states they are, but there are clearly other states that reach the exact opposite conclusion, meaning that if it wasn't documented as a term in the employment agreement as to who is responsible for tail coverage, then the employer is not on the hook. So I would argue, um, make it explicit. You shouldn't leave it silent if you're negotiating an agreement as to professional liability coverage. Don't just think about today. Think about who's responsible for tail coverage down the road um, if and when you leave that organization. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.